Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary Emergency Hardcore Podcast Number Four. Steve Schmee and the Mobster. What's up, buddy? How you doing? Oh, good. As I said to Steve in the pre-show, this is one of those things that could have been super crazy negative, but ends up being really, really positive. So yeah, let's get into it, Steve. So today we're going to talk about the death, recent death of Scott Hall, aka Razor Ramon. We're going to talk about his ups and downs. We're going to talk about how he got his life turned around. We're going to talk about how he was such a firebrand and success in in the ring we're gonna talk about his steroid cycle so stay tuned it's gonna be a good one so full name scott oliver hall most of his wrestling career when he was peaking his name was razor ramon and he began his wrestling career in the mid 80s but it wasn't until the early 90s when he hooked up with the wwf which is now called the wwe that he became well known Peak stats, mobster, he was an absolute beast. Six foot seven, 287 pounds. Incredibly strong, incredibly strong. To be able to do what they do in the ring, you've got to be like incredible. Like you can do, you're Superman, basically. When you're picking up and throwing guys around the ring like that. Hiro Matsuda was his, one of his main trainers during his time. So her early life, uh, we know about Hall. He was an army brat. He was born in 1958 in Maryland. He had to move yearly throughout his early life, and he attended high school in Germany. Very, very tough childhood to have to move every year. You don't develop friendships. Your environment's constantly changing, especially when you're moving around the world, really, uh, being an army brat. So that is not easy at all on a kid. It can be good. I know some army brats, they're very well educated, they're bilingual, but I know some others who really, really have a tough time because, because of it. So um, maybe that affected him, maybe that kind of led. So Mobster, tell us a little bit more about this. I'm just thinking of a couple of things here, Steve. So the argument becomes, if in your formative years, which is what you're referring to really, um, you sometimes need a, a, a sort to be to feel planted and that you can some people feel planted moving around the world but others do not if your dad's traveling especially in the army he's going to be away he's going to be on maneuvers he's going to be doing stuff you know you can go positive or negative positive would be your world traveled you've seen the world you've been around different countries you've been around different people that speak different languages and so on but then also you can be kind of isolated on those army bases sometimes you don't leave the base Sometimes the only people you're seeing is army people. I mean, I'm a great fan, for example, of the Jack Reacher novels. And uh, the, the character himself talks about many times, you know, we were on this camp for three months with my dad. Uh, we were this place for two months. We were at other places. He even talks about, and again, it's a fictional character, Steve, but it's based on the truth, obviously. You know, the idea that you're only at some places for four weeks. You know, you're, you're right in the middle of a war one day and then they're shipping you out the next. And, and if you've got a family, they're along for the ride. And what occurred to me, Steve, as you said it, was that's kind of sometimes what it's like in wrestling. 
So it, it's really difficult on you, and especially if you've got family, if you have wives, kids, grandkids, you, you're, you're kind of like a gypsy. And, 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 but that's not what you want for them, and that's not, not necessarily you know, what you aspire to for them. But your mentality has come from an unsettled situation to another unsettled situation of your choosing. And it can be really, really difficult in relationships. And it can, as we're going to get into, fuck you up a little bit. Uh, you know, we won't be the first nor the last. But as I said, and, and we also know, because as we'll get to towards the end of this uh, podcast, how he's managed to, or managed to, before he passed away, turn that around. So, yeah, back to you. So, early career, 1984, he got his first break in wrestling, joining the NWA, which is a National Wrestling Alliance. Did not have much success early on. The next year, he joined the EWA American Wrestling Association, but it wasn't until he hooked up with the WCW World Championship Wrestling, that's when he got his first TV shot. So as a wrestler, obviously, you want to get on TV as much as you can. You want TV time. You want to build a fan base. That's when you're going to get booked. That's when the agents are going to want to book you to fight their you know, their clients, and that's how you kind of build your popularity from there. So that's, it's really interesting the way wrestling works. We'll kind of get into a little bit more of that also in the show as well. So 1989, his first television appearance came at the July 9 edition of the WCW where he lost to the Great Muta. Then his first pay-per-view event was the Great American Bash Glory Days. So Paul spent his time losing to more popular wrestlers, although he got a lot of TV time in the process. <clears throat> he decided to leave the WCW and try his luck elsewhere. So the way it works in professional wrestling, have you ever noticed, you know, watching wrestling, the same guys lose, lose, lose over and over. And that's where they're, the promoters are booking people to lose matches that are predetermined. And when you, yeah. when you are chosen to lose matches, it's called by the slang term jobbing. And I wasn't aware about the slang term until I researched this article. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, Mobster, but this explains why you're ever watching wrestling. You see the same guys losing over and over. They're basically jobbing, and that's basically where they're just getting paid some cash to lose the match. And you're not going to gain followers, obviously. No one wants to be a fan of someone who keeps losing. <laughs> so you're not going to make it. So this is basically how he spent the early part of his career. Um, and it kind of sucked, but, you know, that's how it goes. So, you know, sometimes for some wrestlers. I'll jump back in here, Steve. I mean, it, the reality, as we know, it's not called World Wrestling Entertainment for a reason that E stands for entertainment. Um, is essentially you, you're looking to give the audience a really good Saturday night you get, or, or whenever, but the main, the big match is Saturday night. So what you're talking about essentially is a form of entertainment. Um, but the, the problem here, of course, is it's a physical entertainment. So essentially you're going to have heels or baby faces. Heels a bad guy, baby faces a good guy. And we know this when we've done podcasts on The Rock. We know this from the little bit of research you can do into these kind of things, guys. Essentially, this level that these guys are talking about, WWE, WCW, et cetera, et cetera, is a business. And, and it's kind of going to come down to the boss, the promoter, uh, the boss of the organization that you're involved in, is this guy popular? Do I think he could become more popular? 
will his fight sell more seats? Will I sell more tickets? Can I, for example, in the case of the WWE, sell, you know, baby wrestlers' pajamas? Can I sell wrestling dolls? Can I put this guy on the front of a video game? And, and that's essentially the business. Now, sometimes the wrestlers get it and sometimes they don't. You have to understand that, for example, even a jobbing wrestler at the high end is relatively well paid. But if Steve's quite correct. Ultimately, in terms of your wrestling career, it's less than ideal. And this is why we see sometimes wrestlers as like Rick, sorry, Razor, leaving one organization to go to another organization just to have a rest, just to be a baby face. So switching from a heel to a baby face character because they're offering a, a different way for him to be presented and making him more of a headliner. I mean, I, you know, 40, 50, $60,000 a year when you're traveling on the road, Steve, and you're getting essentially beaten up uh, every night because just trust me, guys, uh, the professional wrestling fake as it may be, is incredibly physical and very hard on the body. And as we talked about in the Rock podcast, we're talking about 40-something weeks a year getting beaten up, sometimes twice a week, uh, would be not a good situation to be in 100%. Even if you're on $100,000, $200,000 a year, Steve, you're getting beaten up in the ring on the Saturday night. The accidents happen. You're still going to have injuries. You've got the training to do. You're helping sometimes setting the ring up. Trust me, when The Rock was at the very top of his game, he wasn't setting a ring up. He wasn't coming in with the trucks. He wasn't doing that kind of stuff. And as you say quite properly, ultimately, if you want to become a superhero, if you want to become the name, getting beaten up, losing constantly is just not good. I don't even want to get into what that must feel like mentally. You'd have to be kind of like really okay with it. And the idea that, for example, Steve, can you imagine competing as you and I have done at different things that we've done over the years and knowing, knowing, even if the promoter, the organizer of the competition says, here's $100, Steve, here's $200, knowing that you're going to lose every single time. What does that do to your psyche? So, yeah, we're going to get into more of that in a little while. But, yeah, I would not want to be in that position myself as a professional athlete. Back to you. So you got to develop your character. If you're in a yeah. professional wrestler, you got to develop it. So in 1992, he joined WWF World Wrestling Federation. That was the original name before they changed it to mm -hmm. entertainment, as Mobster mentioned. His official nickname was Razor Ramon, who was a tough Cuban from Miami. His character was based on Tony Montana and Randy, uh, Manny Ribeira, the two main characters from the movie Scarface. And, I, you know, I've seen that movie a zillion times. One of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... What's interesting is he used quotes from the movie and used a heavy Cuban accent to deliver them. He also copied movie scenes as promotion for his matches. So he basically turned into that typecast character. And Vince McMahon, we all know who Vince McMahon is, right? And then Pat Patterson. At the time, they were both big-time wrestling producers and promoters. And then, obviously, Vince McMahon became, you know, big you know in, in wrestling he's um he was a ceo president of wwe i think he might still be or he may have you know he owns you know he's one of the big big founders of the company and stuff so we all know who he is yeah mobster too. yeah i think i think actually his daughter's in charge now but uh, yeah the thing that we're talking about here guys is that 
Razor was able to create this character, even though obviously he'd nicked it from the movies. Um, and he was aware, I guess I'm, I'm going back to the Rock podcast again, Steve. One of the reasons why the Rock ended up so successful and become a, a, a name within the organization was because he was great at promos and you need to be able to do that. Some guys are just great wrestlers. That's it. That's all they can do. They're really, really, really good wrestlers and they can sell it to the crowd, etc. but they're crap at promos or they, they have a sort of insipid character. So if you, if, again, if you understand that wrestling is a business and you bring something to the table, you understand how this business works, you sell what you're doing, you create a character, and essentially, obviously, Steve, it's a popularity competition. The, the, the audience loves you and, and the character that you created. Even the audience hating you is good. But if the audience is indifferent, if the audience is kind of like, eh, oh, it's that guy, then, then you're not going to get anywhere. And one of the things that Scott was able to do was he able to create a character, knew how to sell it, knew how to promote it, knew how to sell it in terms of the actual wrestling itself, and, and had an idea of how things were working. And that's what gets you up the ladder. That's what gets you to be the main event. That's what gets you there. Now, ultimately, one could argue that he didn't quite get to the very, very top, but certainly there was a time, uh, 80s and 90s, especially, where he, he would be right up there, Steve. I mean, that's why he's ended up in the Hall of Fame twice. You don't get to that kind of level just because people liked you from way back in the day. You get there because of everything else that I've just mentioned. And that's that's how you become that kind of person. But again, I think we talked about this even with bodybuilders, Steve. Some of them get it. That's why, you know... Jay Cutler's made money because he's invested money. It's why Arnold made money outside of bodybuilding because he knew how to, you know, he knew how to sell himself. He knew how to manage his money, and he did well with it. If you understand the business and you appreciate what needs to go into it to make you successful, it's no good trying to the promoter why can't I be a headliner? You kind of almost got to make yourself that way. And having that character when perhaps other wrestlers did not, being able to promote that character, staying in character. The whole time, the whole time the audience is looking at you, the whole time you're on TV, the whole time you're doing radio slots, uh, every time you're being interviewed in a newspaper or any of those kind of situations, that's what gets you to the top, Steve. Back to you. And what was funny about the situation is they didn't even know about Scarface. They had never watched the yeah. movie. And they just thought it was him making it up. So he basically, you know, I just thought, I thought that was kind of funny. But they loved it. And that actually was brilliant. Without that move, he wouldn't have become what he was. So peak of his career, he got involved in the match between Randy Savage and Ric Flair, where he helped Flair win the WWF championship title. When you start doing stuff like that, then you know that the promoters think you have potential. When they let you start getting involved in situations like that, when they start creating feuds with other wrestlers, he had a feud but that got a feud between him and Savage. And Story he line. also created – he had feuds with other wrestlers. Bret Hart taking personal shots at his family. Ted Diabase, who Hall would beat at SummerSlam. So once you, that starts happening, now you know you're popular. That's a good thing. So that yes. is a, definitely a good thing. So by the time he was a – well, by this time he was a well-known wrestler. This is the mid-'90s. He won the Intercontinental Championship by pinning Rick Marl on an episode of Monday Night Raw. 
He would go on to win. He'd become the first four-time Intercontinental Champion. By the late 90s, the WWF and WCW were the main competing pro wrestling promotions. Hall decided to go back to WCW simply because they offered him time off to rest his body. He would wrestle for many years for WWE, Total Nonstop Action Wrestling, WWC, Juggalo Championship Wrestling, and New Japan Pro Wrestling. Of course, the WWF would become WWE, and they would merge with the WCW. So they became one. I think guys in the 90s that I went to school with, they'd always say WWF was far better than WCW. They thought WCW was a joke, but, you know, that's how it is. So, yeah, Mobster, chime in on that, and we'll get into some of his other television. Exactly. So this is what I was addressing kind of earlier on, guys. Uh, Let's not muck around, right? We know that it is a form of entertainment. We know it's not like for a medal in the Olympic Games. It's not Greco-Roman wrestling here, guys. You know, it's not even school wrestling where you're trying to be like, you know, the wrestler of the school, the wrestler of the district, the wrestler of the county and so on. You're just not. It's not that kind of stuff. It's not a competition. It is entertainment. But to say that it's fake takes a lot away. Like Steve said, when you're the height and the weight that Scott was, 287 pounds at his best, and you're up against someone else that is a similar physique, a similar size builder, whatever else, maybe a little bit shorter because he was quite tall, and maybe a little bit lighter, but just as often heavy as you, if not heavier. It's not uncommon to see 300-pound guys throwing another 300-pound guys. And in fact, we know a couple of examples that was up there, taller and a lot heavier, closer to 400-pound, Steve, around that time. And that's physical. Lifting a 300-pound man up to throw him onto the mat in, in the ring is tough. Throw, having him hit you, even if it's fake hitting you, when he's bouncing off the ropes and running across the ring, hurts. Being slammed onto that sprung floor and, you know, they're not really pile drive on your head. They're not really trying to break your back, but it looks like it is. It still hurts. And then, like I said already, to do that for 40 something weeks of the year, Steve, it's no wonder the man wanted a bit more time off. The guys are, I mean, I, it's not unusual as a high-end athlete in any sport to have some sort of tweak, some sort of twinge, some sort of injury going and that's simply because you're trying to take your body to a place that no one else goes. That's what I, 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 I moan about things. And you say it's because you're trying to break records, you're trying to be a champion, and you're trying to put yourself mentally and physically in a place other people don't go to. Wrestlers, kind of like, it's kind of like no big deal to be carrying something, some kind of injury, all the time when you're wrestling all year round. You really do need those physical breaks, and it's the nature of the business that you don't get them. And worse, like I said to you earlier on, Steve, in the podcast, if you're popular, you know, you're kind of like up, up to a point, perhaps, used more, seen more, promoted more. You're doing more matches. You might have shorter matches. You might be saved for some super match. You might, you know, be the main attraction at the end of the night or whatever else. But ultimately, it's hard it's like being a stuntman every day of the week for 40 weeks, Steve. It's hard physical work. You're falling on the ground, you're doing body slams, you're getting forearm smashes into the chest. And again, as fake as the wrestling is, the guy, is, the other athlete is still hitting you, still pinning you, still throwing you around. And ultimately, throwing 287 pounds, as Scott was, 
onto the mat is going to hurt Scott. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt even if it's just slapping your skin, like doing a, be- a belly belly flop into a swimming pool, Steve. It's gonna, you're going to end up red and raw. And then you've got the train, you've got the practice. They don't just make these matches up as often as not. They're practicing. And that can hurt. And then again, you said you're just not getting a break. You're not getting a break for 40 weeks of hard physical labour, which ultimately is painful. Risk for injury is incredibly high. And even if you're only carrying minor tweaks and stuff, you're carrying those for 90% of the year, Steve, before you get a chance to have some time out. You know, so it's it's not an easy sport. It might be fake, but it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. So the constant pounding on your body is incredibly difficult. Yeah, back to you. Yeah, the average wrestler, even today, this is as of recently, they only get paid about 50000 a year. That's the average. Now, some guys get paid more. Some guys get paid less. They're not getting paid that much. They make a lot of money from endorsements and that sort of thing. But really, the matches themselves, they don't get paid shit for what they're putting their body through. It really is sad. I mean, uh, talking yeah, about yeah. this stuff really is sad. Like, those of you who enjoy watching wrestling, just um, realize you're kind of watching a car crash whenever you watch a match. And it's it's like watching NASCAR, same thing. Uh, people who enjoy watching NASCAR, they admit, hey, I just like it when the cars crash. I'm just watching it for that. So it's kind of sick think if you think about it like that. But it's not like they're getting paid a lot of money. I knew someone growing up whose dad was a wrestler. He was well-known. He was in the WWF, WWE at the time. And she went to school with me and we lived in a poor town and we went to public school and it wasn't like she was going to private school and it wasn't like she lived in a huge ass mansion. They lived a modest lifestyle. Her dad was always traveling to do these matches. So, you know, I would say, I mean, you live like, you know, a middle-class life, a lower to middle-class life as, as a wrestler. Now, when you get to, you know, big levels, it changes obviously, but I think that's a misconception. People think these guys make millions and millions of dollars, and most of them do not. No. I'm going to jump in here, Steve. I think there's a certain – I don't want to delve too much into it, but there has to be a desire to do what they do. You, Quite simply, regardless of how fuggish some people like to come across or whatever else, the idea that you'd be getting into a fight, for example, outside a pub or club or whatever else, and having a fight every weekend, uh, that very, very quickly wears off. People and guys like the bullshit. So they must say, I was always having a punch up. You might have had eight in a row, motherfucker. You haven't had 40 in a row. So this you have to want to be in this lifestyle. You have to want to, you have to like doing what you're doing. It's quite simple. Because again, it's not an easy thing to do. The training, have you ever seen any of those training camp videos and documentaries back in the day, Steve? I think I saw one about 10 years ago, and they had a bunch of young guys that wanted to be pro wrestlers, and there was a couple of places they could go to, training camps. Uh, it's like the worst kind of army training you've ever seen. People were puking like <laughs> every day. They were vomiting every day. They were sort of trying, you know, icing stuff going. Every day they were getting rubbed raw with the ropes and the, and, and the canvas and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And, and then only after they got toughened up, only when they was able to show that they could put themselves through it, did they then move from that into the stuff where you start to sell and you, you, you get your character going and all that kind of stuff. So it's incredibly, incredibly difficult, but you've got to want it. You, 
there's no one that does this and for that length of time and hates it uh, to begin with. They've got to love it to begin with. They might hate it at the end. They might find that they're broken down and they can't do it no more, but they have to be able to live that lifestyle. But to say that, yeah, it's the idea I think sometimes that, you know, with WWE, you're going to be on the TV. You're going to be in front of a big crowd. Yeah, $50,000, Steve. You've got to love it if you're doing it for $50,000 average. You really do. I, I, I wouldn't do this stuff for less than six figures. And it'd have to be probably with a two and a five and a zero at the front. You know what I mean? It's going to have to be 250000 300000 400000 a year. There's no damn way I'd do it for fifty. dollars Just the strain on your body, but the strain on your family, oh, too, has got to be really, yeah. really tough. Because you know your yeah. wife's back home probably cheating on the uh, air conditioning. It's barely the American average salary, Steve. A couple of years ago, the American average, and that's the highs and lows put together, guys. It doesn't mean everybody's on it. But the average American salary, based on the highs and lows, was $60,000. So I'm getting smashed to ground off and injuries and wear and tear and all the rest of it for $10,000 less? Come on. I mean, obviously, it's not minimum wage, but no, 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 no. You have to love this stuff. You've got to want yeah. to be a wrestler. So, yeah. So, I mean, it does take a, it takes a, a toll on your marriage. And, in fact, with him, he had three different married. He was married three times to do two different women. So, his first marriage was to Dana Lee Bergio, failed due to his drug use. They remarried, and then they got divorced again. Then he married Jessica Hart. But that marriage only lasted one year. He has two children. His son, his son, Cody Taylor, is also a wrestler. So you can look into him if you guys are curious and see what he's up to. So, you know, we got to get into the criminal history. Um, he had an amazing career as a wrestler, very well-known, very successful, very entertaining, very talented guy. Criminal history, um, it ties... Some, sometimes, you know, it just, it just, it's tough um, because he did have substance abuse, which you're going to get into in a second. 1983, the big one, outside a nightclub in Orlando, Florida, he had an altercation with a man who had a gun. He tried to wrestle the gun away from the man and it went off, killing the man. He claimed self-defense. Charges were dropped due to not enough evidence. So he got very, very lucky on that one. And Hall has said later on, hey, I developed PTSD from the incident. I mean, accidentally shooting someone or in that situation. I mean, I'm sure he's got, he gets nightmares about it. It's really not something you want to live the rest of your life with that guilt of killing someone over something stupid. You know, you're both leaving a nightclub. You're both drunk. It's late at night. Someone says something, someone bumps into someone and you get in a little skirmish and then someone ends up dead. It's stupid. It's, it's really, really something stupid. In 1998, Arrested for groping a woman in Louisiana outside a hotel. Around the same time, he was arrested for keying a limo, causing $2,000 in damage. 2008, he was arrested while drunk. He attacked a comedian on stage after a joke was made about a wrestler named Owen Hart, who had died doing a stunt during a pay-per-view event. So he was like, he was watching it, and the, the, he didn't like something the comedian says, so he took it upon yeah. himself to go on stage and assault the, the comedian so yeah, guys yeah. i mean look i mean it, i wish it was that way in life where you don't like something that's being said you can you can kind of just attack the person but look i mean you've got to sometimes accept someone's you know joke or someone's opinion i mean just attacking them 
gets you nowhere. So um, Mobster, chime in on that a little bit and then tell us about his two other arrests that he had. Well, I was going to say, I was, I was actually not going to mention those, Steve. They're in the article, guys. I'll tell you what, what, what occurs to me. And, and this is, again, it's not unusual for footballers in this country. I'm sure you've got the same with the, the pro footballers in the States, basketball players and so on. There's a couple of issues here. First off, you're, you're playing essentially what amounts to a bad guy character. You look a certain particular way. And, and that doesn't change unless you're one of those ones that's putting a lot of makeup on. It doesn't change when you're outside of the ring. So you've got a reputation based on a fictional made-up character. There may be elements of you in that character. Then you've got what I mentioned already. So if you are on the road for 40 weeks of the year, you don't have your family with you for most of the time. They might drop in, you might fly home for a couple of days, but for most of the time you're on the road. And this is going to be staying in motels, hotels, near the uh, arenas where you're wrestling, near the places where, you're, where, where events are taking place. What do you do in the evening? What do you do in the evening? Do you, are you in the sauna? Are you getting a massage? Or, or are you down in the bar? What about the pain? What about the discomfort from the injuries? What about the sheer boredom? You've gone from, as I said already, one, one of the crowds uh, is talking about certain events, Steve, that are 30,000, 40,000, 50,000. One of the other wrestlers uh, that was part of the research for this, 93,000 for one of the events that he was involved in. Those are big, big crowds. And then you go back to the hotel on your own with the TV and a hotel dinner, and you don't know what to do with yourself, and you're in pain from the wrestling. So the guys, some of the guys, not all the guys, if you don't have that connection with with the, not your buddies, on the, you have some really, really good buddies, but they're not always wrestling at the same time as you. You're not always attending the same event. So if you haven't got your buddies around you, your, your, your group support, so to speak, Steve, keep you out of trouble, then you're bored. You've gone from the high of this huge event. There's people screaming your name, people asking for your autograph to a room on your own, maybe sharing with someone else in a not necessarily the nicest hotel. Um, what do you do? Do you drink? Do you go to the bar? Do you flirt? Do you chase women? Do you take opioids for the pain that you're in? Does that, as we know, and it's not uncommon again, and it's not just pro wrestlers, but other athletes as well, you go from an opioid pain med to an opioid just to get high to just doing drugs. And it's almost... It becomes almost a, a sort of, oh, how, how often does this happen? And too often is the obvious uh, uh, reply. But it's almost kind of understandable. I would hate this lifestyle. I would hate it, Steve. I'm not a great traveler. And the idea that I'm doing some event in front of 10,000 people on a Saturday afternoon and then I can't go to a nightclub or I can't go to a bar because a tough guy that is drunk thinks I'm this person that you've seen in the ring who's seen on the TV. I, I can't. I can't get drunk. I can't have a quiet beer with my buddies without someone either coming over to cause trouble or just not, not giving me downtime, even if it's just a fan. You know, so it's kind of understandable how they get into this situation. And, and I mean, so I'll, I'll touch on these things. A drunk hall was arrested for cursing and yelling at staff in a bar. A drunk hall was arrested for choking his girlfriend, but the charges were dropped due to lack of evidence. That's 2010 and 2012. I kind of get it. I really do. Um, I would, if I, at my most competitive, 
Uh, you're still talking about me traveling halfway around the world on, on several occasions. And I was lucky that the hotels I would stay in had other athletes or I would be in one of the athletes' homes, specifically in America, that happened a couple of times, that I was looked after, so to speak. I had their family there. Uh, but I can think of an event here in the UK, Steve, where um, one of my buddies took me out for a drink after I won, and then I was having a bath, soaking the pain in my muscles, etc., at one o'clock in the morning, and uh, texting at that particular time the various girlfriends that I had, um, to, you know, pictures of the medal and, uh, sorry, the trophy, and saying how how, how I won, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that's uh, that was like a once a year thing for me, Steve. Can you imagine doing that? every weekend for 40 weeks it's no life and it's complete it's almost understandable that guys getting their alcohols almost understandable they're getting the drugs and especially coming from the pain medications into the opioids and beyond because you are in pain because you are still trying and again you're in pain and then you're going to be fighting again so yeah i kind of get it and i kind of get how a guy that looks like him and acts like him in the ring is going to have these kind of issues outside of the ring i kind of do I didn't think I would, but I kind of do because, yeah, going to, going to a bar with your buddies, a couple of other wrestlers. Uh, it's Saturday night, Steve. The match is finished. You go to 10 o'clock in the evening. You go to a bar. You're standing at the bar. You've had a wash and a shower. You've had a, you've had a shave or whatever else. And you and your buddies are just having, you know, a couple of brews. Is it going to kick off? It might kick off with the bounces. It might look at the doorman. It might they might see you as that person they've seen on the TV and they can't get their head around it. And then what if you are like that? Bar's the last place I want you to be. And yet that's, that's it's, it's, you can't stay in a hotel. You can't live like a monk once you're outside of the ring. So it's a kind of fucked up situation and not everybody's going to be able to handle it, to say the least. I, I mean, even the most famous wrestlers we can think of, Steve, have had issues at some time or another with these kind of situations whether they've turned into alcoholics or drug abusers is not necessarily the case, but they still had these problems to deal with on their way up to becoming as famous as they were. They're not all driving home in limousines. They're not all taking a jet back to their, you know, their wife and the, and the children. It doesn't work like that. It's a tough, tough lifestyle. And I can understand how often it is for a lot of athletes, not just pro wrestlers, how difficult it could be if that's all you know to deal with other situations poorly and to have people imagine that you're this character. Listen, movie tough guys have the same problems as these wrestlers because people imagine, you know, that martial artist is a real martial artist, is a real boxer, is a real tough guy. And in reality, it's fiction. It's not real. And sometimes even the, the actor or the character, the person themselves has the same problem. What they think they can do versus getting smashed across the head of a bottle outside. Or, or, and women are attracted to this kind of situation. It's a bad, bad mix, Steve. I don't think many guys that we know could handle it well, if at all. Back to you. You know, the bottom line is you, you go to a bar, you go to a nightclub, you're looking for trouble. I mean, those aren't the places you're not going to run into, you know, upstanding people, people who... <laughs> are positive in life, people who are successful in life. You're going to run into the losers of society. So if you find yourself going to nightclubs, going to bars, doing that sort of thing, I mean, you've got to reevaluate your life. And that's there's no need for him to do that. I don't care if every other wrestler is doing that. There's no need for you to do I, – I, I I'm trying to cancel one of my friends right now. I'm working with them. 
they are in that habit of drinking every day, going to bars, getting drunk, drinking and driving, all this shit. And their excuses all everyone I work with does it because as a wrestler, everyone you work with does it. That is true. But The Rock doesn't do it. You've got to. The Rock, you know, had a rough history and he done it before and it got him nowhere. So he changed his life and he realized how where it's getting him. So at the end of the day, you have to. I mean, we're not doing this podcast to preach to people. We're doing this, po- this podcast to tell you about Razor Ramon's life, you know, and he succeeded at wrestling. He did a lot of great things, but all this bad shit he went through due to his issues, he managed to turn it around, but he turned it around late in life. If he would have turned it Mm -hmm. around earlier in life, he could have, he could have really done a lot more good for other people and done a lot good for him and his family. So that's, that's really the point that we want to stress to this. So he didn't, it, all this bad shit he did, all of it was caused by drugs and alcohol. So if you find yourself hanging out with the wrong people, if you find yourself putting the wrong things in your body, you need to get it turned around now. Get it turned around now. Instead of spending your spare time, as Mosser was saying, in a bar and a nightclub, spend your spare time in a, in a park. Spend your spare time on the beach. Spend your spare time surfing. Spend your spare time fishing. Something like that that's positive and relaxing instead of drowning your your depression with 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 uh with with alcohol so we're going to get into that in a second momster touched on that a little bit then get into his health problems and we're going to have to talk about his death what happened to him so in the pre-show steve and i were talking about alcoholism and as steve just said i've been around alcoholics uh i had a tenant when i was living in gloucester that literally the moment he would get him from work would start drinking a, a, a jamaican type of beer called a special brew you can buy it in this country, in the UK. Uh, I think you can buy it in the States. It's very similar to Red Stripe. I think it's a little bit stronger. And he would have four of those in about an hour, Steve. Essentially, he was trying to get as close to a buzz or kind of numb, for want of a better phrase, in an hour uh, as he possibly could the moment he would walk in from work. He would go from work to the place to buy the beer and then bring the beer home and then get in. It was a really, it done my mental health no good, never mind the stupidity and the abuse he was giving to himself. I've been around people, obviously, that have had issues without mentioning names, uh, family members, et cetera, um, with drugs and or alcohol. And uh, the reasons why they're doing what they're doing are kind of understood. You can you can see why that person might want to numb themselves against the grief or discomfort or, you know, they're not using drugs or so use alcohol to numb themselves in between getting drugs and all that kind of situation. Uh, and it is a really uh, shit time. I think the problem, what we're talking about here with, with the pro wrestlers is that you're alienating those people that care. You're alienating your buddies. You're alienating those ones that are trying to get you away from these things. You're, you're distancing yourself from your family. You're not being the parent or whatever that you want to be. Um, so when we talk about this stuff, right, you go, okay, so this could be a super negative podcast, Steve, and we could just say this is the reason why he died, but that wasn't the case. What happened was that he had, for example, 2013, I mean, I'll, get, I'll, 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 I'll reference here, so he says himself that there's the things that he'd done and the things that had happened to him, he should have been dead a hundred times, but for some reason, he physically was able to stick around, and in 2013, a fellow wrestler named Diamond Dallas Page 
took him under his wing and invited him to his home to help him get sober and rebuild his life. The, the, the uh, documentary, which were referenced about another wrestler, included uh, Scott and Scott talking about his journey and being grateful just to be asked and the guys making sure that he got there and, you know, um, the wrestler in question, plus Scott, the journey it is, because the focus is on the other guy, but the journey that these two guys took to succeed in recovery, to being able to be resurrected in a way as the wrestlers that they once were, uh, is, 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 well, as I said, um, it, it, it was, I, I had watched the documentary. I didn't think I was going to enjoy it. I was blown away. It was emotional at times when you're talking about six foot, six and a half foot tall, nearly 300 pounds, 290 pound wrestlers recovering from alcoholism, recovering from drug abuse, reconnecting with their family, reconnecting with their grandkids, reconnecting even with the fans and with wrestling, because there's no way that WWE promoters are going to have you turn up for an event drunk. Uh, you're representing the sport. They're not going to invite you to be a Hall of Fame if they think you're just going to stand there staggering around, barely able to string three words together. You're not going to represent the sport and what it's about, what it means to people if you're an alcoholic. It's just not going to happen. So for these guys to recover. Yeah, I guess let's get into specifics here, Steve. We're talking about um, the WWE being aware of the problems that he'd had, physical problems, uh, health issues specifically, paid for his rehab, again, with the person that we've already mentioned. And in late 2010, he ended up having a defibrillator and a pacemaker put into his chest. That same year, he ended up with pneumonia and had to be hospitalized twice. He was also diagnosed with epilepsy and was dealing with seizures. That is a really, really, I mean, that's just going to put you, you should be in a hole. You should be a hole in the ground. The next year, 2011, overdosing on opioids and benzos. And again, these are coping drugs, probably for the pain and discomfort because he won't be as fit or as well. He's struggling with the illnesses that we've already mentioned. They're going to weaken him. They're, they're going to make him frail. When you've been close to 290 pounds uh, and a fantastic wrestler, and now you're laid, you're bedridden constantly with these different things that are happening to you. As if you have a defibrillator and a pacemaker, Steve, he's not going to be exerting himself. He can barely... I think I remember from the documentary, he said that he was the one that said he couldn't get to the gym, wasn't able to train, wasn't able to wrestle, wasn't able to, you know, put some moves on, couldn't do anything. So it's no wonder that he's having these issues, getting as bad physically, obviously the drug abuse, and then being dependent and overdosing on the opioids and benzos. It's absolutely crazy. So, yeah, um, I'll let you address the death, Steve, and then we'll get into the rest. So what we know about his death is he's had many years of hip issues, obviously, and um, very, very common with wrestlers to have these types of issues. I mean, all kinds of problems. They've got herniated discs. They've got shoulders, bum shoulders. Yeah. They've got yeah. bad joints. Injuries are, are crazy, but hip injuries are, are kind of, you know, kind of a pain because with, with hip injuries, really there's not much you can do about it when you're that old, except get a hip replacement. And I know yeah. guys that have worked, you know, in construction who've needed them. I know guys who've been athletes who needed them. I know a guy who's in the Navy, one of my neighbors. Yeah. Huh? 
my girlfriend's had one last year. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's something you know. It's when it gets that much of a pain in the butt. Sometimes you got to get it knee knee replacements, all all that all that stuff. So he had to go to the hospital. He had a nasty hall, uh, fall where he broke his hip, and due to his prior hip issues, he's had to make a you know decision. Hey, I gotta get a hip replacement. So during the hip replacement surgery, a blood clot was dislodged and caused him to get three heart attacks on March 12th. He was put on life support. He passed away on March 14th at 63 years old. And Kevin Nash, one of his best friends. Yeah, you jump in. Yeah, I think I want to jump in. We we talked about this previously. I want to make sure that we don't miss this. So his family made the decision to switch off his life support. So here's here's a situation. I've been there and done that. And uh, yeah, with my brother. Uh, my brother had abused drugs, uh, used alcohol to cope afterwards when he was um, in rehab. And I would say that not rehab specifically, but wasn't doing the drugs that he'd done before, which was heroin and was on medication for that, but would use alcohol as a coping mechanism, not to the point where he was getting drunk just to take the edge off and the physical abuse on his body over the years from doing the heroin led to him passing away at the age of 40. And as they passing away, he ended up with organ failure, which is essentially when everything's shutting down. And that meant he was on life support at King's College Hospital in uh, Campbell, London, where my, I was born and brought up. And I made the journey down there to see him on life support and seeing him there on life support, I knew that he wasn't coming back up. I knew that Without the machines, he, he wouldn't live. So I've come back home and at the same time, by phone, we're talking to the family and the decision's made. The doctors are saying this is what needs to happen. We think that, you know, at some point, this is the situation and you agree and they go ahead. So I've been there, seen there and done that. And I kind of get it. When you're talking about free heart attacks after an operation um, and you're on life support, it's going to be, Will that? Put, I mean, he's bearing in mind with the, he's got a pacemaker, a defibrillator fitting, Steve, and you're still having heart attacks. You're kind of fucked, right? So, I mean, let's put it crudely. And then you're going to go down, is this person, without the life support, are they going to live? And the short answer is no. Are they going to come round? No. Has, has there been brain damage? Is the heart ruined? pacemakers defibrillators there's only so much they can do pacemaker essentially stops the rhythm of your heart getting carried away but it doesn't mean you can go running for buses or, or do anything athletic it's a steady constant thing it doesn't i don't know enough about them Steve, but i don't think they adjust so everything has to be done at a certain pace a defibrillator is essentially keeping get restarting your heart so he's got something in his chest prior to this issue just to restart the heart if it needs to be restarted. I don't know if that's by remote control or tapping a button or, 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 or what, Steve, but that's the situation. And, and then you have three heart attacks. You're, you're kind of already dead already. And so I kind of get what the, the, the family have decided. They said, you know, dad, husband, uh, granddad, whatever, is never going to be alive as we know him. And therefore, they make that decision with the doctors, with the medical advice to switch the machine off. I get that. But you are kind of like, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. It's, um, 
you, you need to sit down and really think your stuff out. And you sometimes, Steve, I think there's an element of here uh, of, of being a little bit selfish if you keep someone alive in that situation. Having them around on a machine just with the beeping and the breathing and all the rest of that stuff, you're doing it for yourself. And I get that as well, but ultimately it's kind of selfish because all that, <coughs> that person isn't there anymore and the machine is just making stuff work that wouldn't be working if the machine wasn't there. I think so, you have to discuss that with your family oh, and let them know if I'm ever in that situation, please yes. pull the plug. Let me go. Yeah. You know, so that's I an said, important thing. I, you said, have to I, 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 I said goodbye to my brother before I left the hospital and that's before the decision was made. I knew that in my mind straight away, uh, seeing him there with the discoloration of the skin, the kind of uh, jaundiced skin and, and bloated from the fluids and the steroids and all the rest of the stuff that they had him on. And with all the machines, I mean, this was a great array of machinery. I knew that, that decision, in a perverse way, was going to be easy, Steve, because there was no damn way that person that was laying there was my brother anymore. So for me, it was kind of easy. But yeah, it's, it, you, you do. You don't just go, Dad said you're going to switch a machine off and that's it. No, 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 no. The whole damn family's involved. Everybody's involved. Everybody should be informed. Uh, there might be some person that ultimately goes and speaks to the doctors representing the family, and, and it may be a tough decision to make. Not everybody's going to agree. So, yeah, it's not an easy thing to be, a situation to be in uh, from the family side. Uh, but equally, yeah, I think you're right, Steve. It's one of those kind of, if I was ever that fucked, switch me off. Because I ain't coming back. The person you know is gone. Uh, and, and, and it's just a, the, the plug not being pulled out of the wall that's keeping me in, on this side of things versus yeah. the fast. So, yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, man. So, I mean, sorry, man, that you had to go through that with, with your brother. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah, Scott Hall, you know, he, he went through a lot of rough patches, but, um, you know, rest in peace, buddy. Um, he turned his life around. He became an inspiration for a lot of people. So that's what we like to see. Um, I like those types of yes. stories. I like guys who went through a lot of bad stuff. Guys, you know, you love to hate guys who are criminals. We've talked about some of these guys on our podcast too before. Guys who have sold fake supplements. They got caught. They've gone to prison. I'd love to hear stories of them coming out of prison and then doing good in the world, turning their life around. And, um, yeah. you know, that's what you like yeah. to see. Um, but if they, they, if they come out of prison and they continue to be assholes and cheating people and stealing from people, then fuck them. You know, that's, I, you get one shot with me. If you don't get your shit turned around, then, then you're, you're done. I'm done with you. So in, in this guy's situation, he got his life turned around. So I give him, I give him kudos to that. So yeah, mom, sir, finish out your thoughts on that. Let's get into a steroid cycle. Yeah, I was going to say for between 2013 and 2022, he's hundred percent turned his life around and become an inspiration, become a hall, hall of fame honoree. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, you become, you, you've, you've always had fans from that time, but you kind of resurrect your relationship with them. And, uh, become an inspiration and looking at the video for again the specific documentary on another athlete and the audience is 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 at the hall of fame as he's being awarded his buddy given a great speech and the audience response this is where scott was as well and something else as well i think which is kind of interesting and we don't really mention it too much in the article but what you then do what you should do is that you help support other people that have been in the same situation as you. So like Steve says, there's an argument, and this is one of our sort of words of advice things we can give to listeners. 
where you're allowed to fuck up. You are, right? And especially if you're in a situation, the background, the, the experiences that some of these wrestlers have been through. You, we get it. We understand it. But you don't need to keep on down that path. You don't need to carry on having that journey. You can change direction. And if you do that, one of the things you can do is you can give back. If someone helped you and pulled you out of that mess and helped you reestablish a relationship with your friends, with your family, with your buddy, with the wrestling community, then you can do that for other people. You, be, you can become an inspiration. And this is why I think Scott had, because he wouldn't have been as popular or as missed when he died. He wouldn't have been, people wouldn't have been, who, 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 who? I don't remember him. Oh, yeah, yeah, that guy. No, that's not what happened. So he was incredibly popular back in the day. He had his issues, but he had a good nine years, Steve, where he was able to change that, bring back the, the kind of character of the man that he once was, re-establish relationships with family, re-establish relationships with friends, and help other people. And again, I referenced that documentary because... There's parts on there where he talks about stuff that he's been involved in, the main character, the focus of the documentary, and similarities. And again, uh, there's there's a part on there, for example, where the documentary's main focus rings, they ring him up, the guys that are going to help him. And because he's on the phone, Scott comes and Scott gets involved and Scott starts his journey. But because, of course, he wasn't the main focus of the documentary, we didn't get to see the rest of his journey but it's going to mimic the, the main characters. It's going, to, it's going to be that kind of situation. So like Steve says, these are great things. I mean, incredibly entertaining as well, Steve, but it's, it's, that's just me being selfish for wanting to be entertained. For them to be able to turn their life around and create this positivity and do something like this and end up being resurrected uh, as, as someone to be admired on within the community wrestling community is fantastic it really is Steve. let's talk about the peds because you don't get to do what these guys do and look the way that they do it's a part of the game yeah so let me start with the first half of the cycle and i'll let mobster kind of take over the rest so one of the things you know for sure he would have messed around with was human growth hormone especially in the latter part of his career somewhere between five and 15 I use per day. It really depends. Um, and, and growth hormone does a lot of good things for wrestlers. Obviously, it helps them stay trim. It gives them appetite so they can eat a shit ton of food. It also helps them recover from their brutal training and sessions and all that stuff. I mean, and it's very, very important. It's very, very expensive, but it's very, very important to mess around with the HGH. Another thing, uh, 1,000 milligrams a week testosterone. I don't think in his case it was unreasonable to think he was on that much. I think that the aggression that you get from that kind of dosing, dosing of testosterone and the amount of strength increase that you get combined with 1,200 milligrams a week of parabolin slash trenbolone, um, great for strength, great for aggression. You need both when you're in the ring. Equipoise, 800 milligrams a week. We know guys around that time were messing around with equipoise. Great mm -hmm. for endurance. Great for um, increasing lean muscle mass. Great for strength. 
and it's mild compared to the other two compounds. So it stacks really well with them. And then I'll, I'll mention one more and I'll let mobster uh, finish the rest. Anadrol, 100 milligrams a day Anadrol. It's an oral and Anadrol is great for strength. It's great for aggression. It's great for size. I think it's a great steroid if you want that type of physique. You want that big wrestler type of physique. Big, yes. um, very, very mass, massive. Anadrol is great for that. It's sensational for, for strength. Since I can't say enough about Anadrol and how good it is for strength and how good it is for making you feel like an alpha, making you feel aggressive. So you can go in there and you can kick ass in the ring. I'll jump in here now, Steve. I mean, the thing is um, people need to be aware of is around the same time as the guys were using these kind of drugs to create the physiques, you're, you're looking at superhero type physiques. You really are. And it was like the game had moved on because I can remember British wrestling back in my, when I was a kid, watching British, British wrestling on TV. And it was very rare to see a muscular wrestler. It was very few people that looked like the WWE wrestlers of today, uh, back in the seventies, when I would have been watching it on TV. In fact, if anything, one of our most famous wrestlers, Big Daddy, and his, uh, his nemesis, Giant Haystacks, they were fat motherfuckers, big fat motherfuckers. There was a few that look, kind of looked solid looking, uh, you know, and, and athletic, but no one was superhuman muscular. No one was 280 pounds with abs and veins. As that, and that's what happened. The sport moved on. Uh, TV was presenting these kind of people. CGI was starting to introduce that kind of stuff to movies. Superman got, you know, in original, you look at the Superman character over the years, Steve, from, you know, a sort of um, borderline wrestler of that time physique, completely covered up. You, you saw no veins, no cap delts, no six pack, no trim waist, no muscular fires, no quad popping through. And then look what's happened in the last five, 10 years for all of the Superman and, and uh, Marvel superhero type characters. In the movies, everybody's got something going on, almost out of necessity. And if you're, that's what's happening in the movies, and that's what's happening in TV, then that's what happens in wrestling. You would not get 90,000, 100,000 people turning up for an event if these guys looked like they were out of shape. So we kind of understand it. I think the, the, the only thing I'm, I'm, I'm inferring here, guys, so don't, you know, if you're wrestling fans, don't find a way to bomb my pals if I'm wrong. But the guys would help each other out with steroids and, and get hold of what they got hold of, especially when you're on the road uh, visiting bodybuilding gyms or hooking up with a local person to supply you or whatever else on the road. And they would not, they're not sharing specifically drugs, but they would do deals together so that they could get, they could acquire what they needed to acquire. Again, if they're only on an average of 50,000, you're not going to have a lot of money to spend on loads of drugs above and beyond everything else that you're involved in at the same time. So yeah, I can I can completely agree with the cycle that you've mentioned, Stephen, especially with the growth hormone because of the injury and the tissue repair, et cetera. In modern times, I could see peptides being in there uh, now, but, but they weren't available at that time and certainly weren't commonly available. I'll, I'll deal with the last steroid and then I'll get into the other drugs and the life. And the last steroids is up to 150 milligrams a day of anavar, pretty much for the same reasons that Steve's already said. It's a retention of muscle issue, to keep that muscle on when you're not able to train properly all the time, you're getting workouts, perhaps midweek in some gym in the middle and nowhere. Some gyms are great, some are not. 
you know, you're on the road, how far off the road you travel to find a good gym and train. You're not always able to train. Sometimes you can rehearse, sometimes you can't. The wrestling matches and then the wrestling matches themselves. And you still got to look good. You still got to be strong. And that's, that's just on the, on the steroids and the performance enhancing drugs. Now, very common. Uh, and we've said, uh, it's not a great revelation for me to say otherwise. It's been covered in books, it's been covered in documentaries, it's been covered in radio and TV stuff. It, it, it's, it's, everybody knows that a lot of wrestlers are using painkillers to cope with the injuries and the issues that we've already mentioned. And this is up to and including opioids, which, we've, we've, which we stated during the podcast. Essentially, you cannot do what they do if you're a normal Joe and you not have pain. Uh, and even if you're a great school athlete and you get into that this kind of wrestling, it, there's going to be a risk of injury, which is incredibly high. And as I said already, so whether it's a frozen shoulder, whether it's a, a moody knee joint, whether it's a tendonitis in the elbow, this is constantly. And you're in pain before you get into the ring. So the idea that they're taking painkillers and opioids is 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 no stretch whatsoever. And so we know because he's had issues and because he's had over overdoses, we know that uh, Scott was doing these things. Uh, there's a suggestion here as a six pack of beer a day. I'm actually going to say more um, because as I said, my lodger would do four within an hour of getting in just to numb of the whatever he was feeling. Uh, and and then, then it's a, just a question of non-stop drinking until it's time you know either to fall asleep or unconscious and then go back to work in the morning or just buzzing all the way through weekends and this is not uncommon for any alcoholic not necessarily scott but the, the, the situation um so i've i've been around again family members that have been like this it's a constant thing it doesn't necessarily mean great quantities of alcohol but it's pretty much you know, even if they've got the wherewithal and the willpower to wait till lunchtime, from lunchtime till they crash in the evening is constant. It doesn't have to be 20 or 30 beers. It might be four beers. It might be eight beers. 287 pounds, six and a half foot tall. Six pack is probably a, a light day steep. Uh, but this is every day. And the reference here for hard liquor three times a week I, I mentioned in the pre-show to Steve, the famous actor Richard Burton says about a, a, a time of his life when he was full-blown alcoholic, where he kind of almost seeked, can I, can I die or not? Let's see what ha kind of happens. And having times where he didn't know what day of the week it was, something the interviewer says to him about drinking and he says when did you start drinking he said wasn't I, wasn't I didn't stop drinking it wasn't a i got up in the morning and started drinking i was still drunk from the night before so i'm just carrying on it wasn't a part of that day when i was sober and at, at one point in richard burton's case he said i think the worst i got to he says i didn't really know people told me because i was just there and in it that i was drinking three bottles of liquor a day steve so it's the, I think the only kind of almost saving grace for these guys is their genetics in the case of Scott and others. Sometimes their genetics, is, it's like the slowest form of suicide you can imagine. And yet the genetics is kind of like almost kind of resistant. Ultimately, and I think you and I have discussed this on the forum, Steve, whether it's the opioids or the beer or hard liquor, it's a poison. 
They're all poison. Every single one of them is toxic. Opioids as painkillers are toxic. Uh, a small amount to reduce the level of pain, fine. A beer with a meal, a glass of wine with the girlfriend when you're out, it's great, no problem. There's a social part of it, but we're not talking about anything like that. We're talking about getting high, getting buzzed, getting drunk, getting blotted, not getting numb uh, from pain, from discomfort, from life. And that's what you end up dealing with. So the height of the situation, six pack to me is almost a, a, an easy way to go. Hard liquor three times a week. I think sometimes with certain situations, Steve, it's just whatever's available. And the opioids, we kind of get again. The painkillers we discussed at the beginning, guys, because we talked about the pain, the level of discomfort, the injury, and the life. You kind of get it. So the positive, because I want this to be positive as well, Steve, from both himself and the focus of the documentary, which he's involved in, was that these guys both turned their life around. In, in that way, it becomes a great shame just for us as fans us doing this podcast that a man that was able to turn his life around from 2013 till now didn't make it longer at the age of 63 to to to, to use a phrase that everybody uses now uh, there's no age at the age of 63 but i mean that's only six years older than me steve for a start what a life he's had look at the heights he's been to and being able to re-establish the relationships to become kind of famous again, to become popular, to become an all of fame honoree, and then get that seven, eight years, and then pass away. It's it, you want it to go lot. You want it to go longer. You want him to have more time with his family, more time with kids, more time with re those relationships to rebuild. You know, stuff that's been damaged, uh, even if it's reconnecting with someone that you divorced because you was an absolute fucking monster while you were married, even if it's just to apologise for what an arsehole you were, to have that time and have more of it, because you have been down a rabbit hole, you have been in a nasty, horrible, shitty place, but like you and I have both agreed on, you know, you give those people chances, and if they fuck it up, then you move on. He's been able to recover from that, so you and I would be, if he was a buddy of ours, we would be so fucking proud that he'd made it, and he would be, we would hold him up. I know he would do himself as well as a representation of someone who's managed to overcome and be an inspiration, whether that's going to Alcoholics Anonymous and sitting there go, guys, I haven't had a drink for fucking nine years. This is who I used to be. You can do it too. Look how shit my life was. Look how bad. Look at the hole that I went down to and I came back out. I've, I've got my relationship with my family. I've got my relationship with kids. I've apologised to the people that I hurt. And the, they say, being inducted into the Hall of Fame, standing up there and people can't believe that you, you're the guy, that they knew what happened to you and they're amazed to see you in front of them. And, and that's really, really special, Steve. And you want that person then to have a longer, more valued life from this point forward. So it's a great shame, having managed to do that, that he didn't get more time to, to carry on the good work and to keep those relationships going. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough situation because of the surgery. You know, the surgery happened. The surgery didn't go well. There's always a risk when you have surgery. So keep that in mind. Um, I always encourage people to get 
multiple opinions before you go ahead and have a surgery because at the end of the day, you know, surgery can take time, you know, take years off your life. Um, yeah. Whether this, even if the surgery goes well, it will take years off your life. So you have to always surgery needs to be a last resort. You're trusting another human being to take a knife and cut you open. It really needs yes. to be a last resort thing. I think in his situation, his hip was so degenerative. The fact that he was falling, he fell, he broke his hip. He really needed to get it done. And it was one of those things where it was just a disaster waiting to happen. So yeah, that's, that's sometimes that's what happens. And hopefully he can, uh, you know, ho- you know, hopefully his family is, um, you know, they're, they're, they're doing well and, and they're handling it, handling well. They understand that, you know, he was able to get his life turned around and turn a negative into a positive. So yeah, finish up the podcast, Rob, sir, and take us in the disclaimer. I'll echo uh, Steve's comments here. I've actually, in fact, uh, referenced it uh, on the forums, funny enough, I believe, Steve, and also when, again, the girlfriend had a hip operation. I think sometimes, for example, I, 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 the example I gave before was plastic surgery. So people don't always understand that literally being carved open by a surgeon and having stuff moved around for cosmetic reasons, we get the why. But you have to remember that an operation is a big deal. It is ultimately, someone stabs you, Steve, that's trauma. Someone cuts you open because they're a surgeon. It's still fucking trauma. And in Scott's case, it was trauma on a guy with a defibrillator and a pacemaker to keep him alive. So the risk would have been a lot, lot higher for them, for example, me or you, if we were having a hip operation. Um yeah, and you're talking about essentially they're giving the met just to get you under. Some people take three to four days to recover from the anesthetic, never mind the operation. And then essentially, like I said, I've been stabbed. I've got a punctured lung. It's from a long story. So all my different experiences I've had. I mentioned these podcasts, but I've had that. And I went back to work after a week, and it took me another two solid weeks, three weeks in total, to recover. And that was in my peak physical condition in terms of me running cardio heart ticking over everything so yeah it took me three solid weeks just to feel right from that situation and i did not have the health issues did not have a pacemaker and a defibrillator like scott so yeah 100 percent agree with steve it is a big stress on the body and in the situation here it's kind of the, the risk factor for him passing away would have been incredibly high equally not being able to walk i can see why they they went ahead and had the operation like I said, old military guys, this is a kind of could have been a really, really messed up story. Could have been incredibly negative if it wasn't. From the highs to the lows and then back up again is a hell of a journey. It's a shame that he passed away at 63, but well worth a listen, well worth a read. Check him out, go online, see what other people are saying about him. He wouldn't have been as popular or missed from his death if he was an arsehole. Uh, and was still fucked up and was still burning bridges. It wouldn't have been, and he is. So, you know, that, there's there's a thing for you to uh, be aware of. Right, as always, guys, please note, we are not doctors, and the opinions that we put in this podcast are hours and hours alone. It's our view and based on our experience and views on the topic. Our podcast are informational purposes and entertainment only. The freedom of speech and the first amendment. Podcast.